Thanks for that. Uh, that's awesome. What a welcome to the reading today, um, which is from Acts 18, verses 1 to 28. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted, him, devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. <coughs> this man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sencrii because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined, but as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and travelled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. 
Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervour and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, thank you, Lisa, and welcome, everyone. And if I don't know you, my name is Chris. I'm the pastor here. Welcome. I just want to say we normally have singing with a band, all right? So that will happen next week. Um, anyway, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that your word is a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you would shine through the Holy Spirit into our hearts and minds that we would understand your living word and its relevance for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Every January for the last three years, we've kicked off the year uh, in the book of Acts, uh, primarily because it's so encouraging a way to start the year. So continuing the series, we're now coming to the end of Paul's second missionary journey, and there is a map of that. <laughs> okay. Uh, after first strengthening the disciples um, and the churches that he planted on his first missionary journey, and that's kind of the top part of that red arc and arrow there, um, he's then directed by Jesus to go across the sea into Macedonia, that green blob on the left, and Paul's strategy there has been to focus on cities. So first of all, he goes to Philippi, a Roman colony. Then he goes to the larger city of Thessalonica, which is the capital of Macedonia, right? Uh, that's a city of around 200,000 people. Then via Berea, he heads down to Athens. That's the intellectual um, capital of the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire. And today we see him going to Corinth, which is the capital city of the neighboring um, Roman province of Achaia, and he stays there for a year and a half before he crosses the sea again back into Turkey. He touches briefly at Ephesus, which he'll then return to and stay for three years there, and we'll cover that next week. So what we see is Paul's strategic emphasis on reaching cities. Why cities? Cities are a collecting point for people and ideas, and from cities, people go out and ideas are spread. And in the time between Jesus' death on the cross, resurrection, ascension into the heaven, the time between then and his return, his agenda is to get the good news of what he's done out to the ends of the earth. That's the agenda for the whole book of Acts as the news of Jesus spreads outwards from its Jewish center at Jerusalem out into the nations because Jesus, of course, is the Lord and Savior of everyone, not just the Jews. And to get the news out, Paul focuses strategically on 
cities. Now, that is a strategy move which still makes sense today. Think about it. In 1850, there were only four world-class cities of over a million people. Within 100 years, by 1950, that had risen to 83 cities. Today, that number is 512. By 2050, it's estimated that 75% of the world's population will live in big cities. So reaching people with the gospel must focus on reaching the cities. News can quickly spread within a city and from there news can go out to the world. The question that then follows is how? How do you reach a city? Well, Acts chapter 18 shows us. So with the gospel coming to Corinth, we are shown patterns of what we can expect as the kingdom of God advances into cities. Now, what sort of city was Corinth? Okay, there is a zoomed in map and you can see where Athens is over there and to the east of this is Asia, Turkey and places like Ephesus, okay? To the west across, across the, um, is Italy and Rome and between the two is this narrow little stretch of land there, okay, which is only four miles across connecting two seas, the Adriatic, the Aegean Sea and that is the site of Corinth. It's a major place of trade. So in ancient times, Corinth had a slipway and you could take small boats across that land bridge with the cargo of larger ships being unloaded and transported across. Today, ships move through a channel carved in that rock. So it was a place which prospered. In its heyday, in 500 BC, Corinth had been a mega city of 800,000 people. By 53 AD, Acts chapter 18 time, it, it had been destroyed, rebuilt by Julius Caesar. It was now a thriving city of around 200,000 people. It was into that city that Paul ventured. Now, when we think of Paul going into a city, we, we have this image of him as this super evangelist, mega confident, converting people left, right, and center. This wasn't the case. He'd been chased out of Thessalonica and Berea, He'd been snubbed by the leading thinkers at Athens. He was still recovering physically from his wounds of being flogged at Philippi. And on top of that, he comes into a city which is very proud. Image and presentation are everything. And yet, and also it's a very immoral city. On the mountain behind Corinth, uh, Corinth boasted this massive temple to Venus, the goddess of love, which had 1,000 shrine prostitutes who would work the temple by day and the city of Corinth by night. By, even by pagan standards, Corinth was notorious for its immorality. And so it's no wonder that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, when I came to you, I came in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So the lessons we will draw from Acts 18 are lessons that are applicable to us because Paul was no superhero evangelist. He was just as weak and human as we are. And in the time remaining, I want to draw attention to four lessons we can learn on reaching a city. First lesson is establish partnerships near and far. So in verses one to four, Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila, who are this Christian couple from Rome who own and run a tent-making business with branches in Rome and Corinth 
and Ephesus, okay? Now, because Paul is alone and he's had to, he has to support himself, he goes to them because he himself is a tent maker. Paul's um, rabbin, earlier rabbinical training included learning a trade, so if things went pear-shaped, you could have something to fall back on. None of that pre-Christian training was wasted. Paul is now a Christian apostle, and yet he's able to support himself in his mission work by making tents so that no one whom he evangelizes could say he was in it for the money. And yet it was as he was seeking out work that he stumbled across Priscilla and Aquila, this lovely Christian couple who became partners with Paul in the gospel. So Paul not only works with them and lives with them while he is at Corinth, but they become his traveling companions going with him to Ephesus. And then at the end of the chapter, they exercise this substantial ministry themselves to Apollos, which I spoke about in the kids' talk. He's another Christian teacher, very zealous, very accurate in most of what he says. He's deficient, though, in some areas, maybe in his teaching about baptism, we don't know. So Priscilla and Aquila, rather than rebuking Apollos, they take him into their home and they straighten him out and they explain the way of God more accurately. So there is one example of a partnership that Paul establishes near to him. But then we read in verse five that when Silas and Timothy arrive from Macedonia, there's a change. Paul is now able to devote himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Before this, he'd only been able to do this on one day a week on the Sabbath. But now he can devote himself to this full time. And what has made the difference? The answer is partnerships far away. He's established partnerships in the gospel with the, church, uh, with the churches that he formerly planted. So when um, he's arrived at Corinth, he's out of his mind with worry for the churches he's founded. They are still experiencing the same opposition that he himself uh, experienced and, and led to him leaving. But when Timothy ar arrives, Paul writes of this in 1 Thessalonians 2, and he says, Timothy has just now come to us from you and brought good news about your faith and love. And he's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. So the, the mental anguish that he was under has been much relieved. And furthermore, these very young churches at Philippi and Thessalonica, they're dug deep into their pockets and then voluntarily come up with the money to enable Paul to preach the gospel full time. Practical partnership in the gospel. And so later on, Paul will write back to this church in Corinth and he'll say, I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I wasn't a burden to anyone because the brothers who came from Macedonia, that is Timothy and Silas, they supplied what I needed and I've kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. So what Paul enabled Paul to shift gear from just preaching one day a week to preaching full-time were the partnerships that he'd established with the churches in Philippi and Thessalonica who were now funding his ministry in Corinth. So Paul was able to reach the city of Corinth because he had developed partnerships in ministry both near Priscilla and Aquila and far with other churches. Now, we also here have a chance to develop partnerships near and far and this will strengthen our evangelistic impact.
So near, there are other churches we can work with in things like the Christmas pageant, Impact Youth Camp, sharing the preaching series. And far, we work with other churches in things like Trinity Youth. We're looking to partner with Alice Springs Anglican Church in September by running their kids program for their weekend away. There are more examples. We formally partner with the Bible College of South Australia who prepares people for ministry. And then with Engage Work Faith who encourages you know, everyone who works to see that as a valid ministry that they can shine in. Uh, we partner with the Church Missionary Society who send out people, of course, across cultures with the gospel, with Bush, Bush Church Aid Society who encourage gospel ministry in regional and remote Australia. We partner with evangelical students who help reach the university students in our cities. These are all examples of gospel partnerships. But of course, there's more than that, aren't there? Uh, there are people here who have partnerships, not formal ones through our church, but partnerships with other organizations who are all on about the same thing making disciples of Christ across the world, and especially in our cities. Now, I want to say, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot not be involved in trying to reach cities, <laughs> okay? And our first lesson about how to do this is to develop partnerships near and far. The next lesson is fulfill your responsibility to witness wherever you can until you can't. In verse five, when it says Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying that Jesus was the Christ, that word for devoted himself exclusively has the idea of continuously holding on to. So he continuously held himself to this task of testifying to Jesus. Now I know we are not Paul, right? He was an apostle, okay? But each of us who follows Jesus is bound up with the goal of seeing God's kingdom advance. That's what Jesus tells us to pray for, doesn't he? Your kingdom come. And even Paul himself would later run right to the Corinthians, always give yourselves fully to the work of Christ because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And he'll say, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ in becoming all things to all people so that by God's grace I might win some. Everyone's to be involved in that work. And the idea is, is for us to grasp hold of our responsibility to witness to Jesus and give ourselves consciously to it and fully to it. And do you know what? When you do that, you discover there are opportunities all the time. For example, last week, the ministry center toilet area got retiled. Hooray! By Doug, a quietly spoken tradie. Well, I connected with Doug. I had to open up, close, you know, numerous times during the week as he came in, and we got talking at lunchtime. And the question of faith came up and, and I was able to share the gospel in, as, as I shared my story of how I came to believe in Jesus myself. Uh, two days ago, he finished, I, I thanked him for his work and I said, look, I'd, and we could have just left it there, but I said, look, you know, you're only in Mount Barker, I'd love to catch up with you over a beer or a coffee sometime. I just threw it out there. He said, yeah, yeah, I've still got to get my daughter baptised. I, thought, I said, well, I can't talk to you today because it's New Year's Eve, but why don't we catch up in the new year and guess what, I'm gonna invite him to Alpha. 
okay? There are opportunities all the time. Every day, we meet people. There's the neighbour, there's the checkout worker at the supermarket, there's your work colleagues, there's your clients, there's your extended family. And even if it's not always appropriate to speak in your context directly about Jesus, we are to witness to Jesus by the way we live. Because once it gets out that we're Christians, people watch us, right? And they'll judge the credibility of Christ by the credibility of our lives. So Paul gives himself to testifying about Jesus in the synagogue. But in verse six, when the Jews start blaspheming Jesus and become abusive, Paul then shakes out his clothes in protest and says, okay, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. And get this, very provocatively, he leaves the synagogue and sets up shop next door at the house of a Gentile God-fearer named Titius Justus, who presumably has become a Christian through Paul's preaching. So Paul fulfills his responsibility to witness wherever he can until he can't. And when he can't, because he's abusively opposed, the responsibility shifts. Now maybe you in your life, you've tried to share the gospel with someone and, and then they've just put up a barrier and they've said, you can never mention the name of Jesus to me again. That has happened to me. And when it does, you don't say, oh well, I'm giving up. You shift your responsibility elsewhere. And it wasn't as if Paul's efforts were in vain. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believe in the Lord. And then Crispus, in turn, becomes this great evangelist so that many people who heard him believed and were baptized. It would have been a very interesting place to be. You've got the synagogue who's against Paul, evangelism happening right next door, and the former synagogue ruler now joining in the evangelism. Interesting, right? It's no wonder that the Jews eventually made another attack against Paul, this time through the courts. If you look at verses 12 to 17, we read of their united attack on Paul before Gallio, the proconsul of Archaea, which is, of which Corinth was the capital. So it's, he's a big dude. Now, essentially, Paul was accused of getting people to worship God in a way that was non-Jewish. Let me explain. In the Roman Empire, any religious worship conducted had to be officially sanctioned by Rome. And Rome would sanction pretty much any religious worship so long as Caesar was worshipped as a god. But the Romans knew that, from past experience, that there was no way that hot-headed Jews would ever do that. So they, and only they, were left off the hook. Their religion, the Jewish religion, was legitimised, and what the Jews were now saying was that the Christianity which Paul was preaching was not Jewish, Therefore, it was illegitimate, and therefore, it was liable to the hard hand of Roman law. What happens? Well, Luke records Gallio's words, and here's the third lesson, that when we're under attack, trust God, even non-Christian authorities can be helpful. Gallio says, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or some serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I'm not going to be a judge of such things. As far as he's concerned, the Jews' squabble with Paul was simply over differences within Judaism. He wasn't going to enter into that. But you, do you see what's happened? 
Effectively, Gallio, a Roman proconsul, has declared in a Roman court that Christianity is a legitimate religion within the Roman Empire. That's what's just happened. And that means that Paul's got official sanction now to speak about Jesus, which means that the Jews have no more recourse to Roman law in attacking Paul. Does that mean we can always expect our governments to support the Christian cause? No, it doesn't. Because we see that immediately after this, Gallio turns a blind eye when a Gentile mob outside the court decide to beat up the replacement synagogue ruler and to show their anti-Semitic colors. Okay, governors and governments cannot be relied on to follow God, but trust God because though they're often opposed to God, authorities still can be helpful. In verse 18, we're told this, um, that then Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time before leaving Ephesus. And that was after he'd already stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. And yet it was hard. How did he do it? How did he keep it up? How did he persevere for a year and a half? It's a long time to keep going in a hostile environment. He's only been in the other cities very short times. How did he keep on going in Corinth? Now we come to our fourth and last lesson, and this lesson is not so much a lesson about something we can do, you know, your top tip for successful ministry. It's not a principle for us to implement. It's something far more useful. It's an encouragement given to us personally by Jesus from heaven. Look at verse nine. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. Because I am with you and no one is going to harm and attack you. Because I have many people in this city. That was the reason, verse 11, that Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Now, why is this recorded for us? It's not just to explain why Paul spent so long in Corinth. It is recorded as Jesus' personal encouragement to us. An encouragement for us not to be afraid, not to be silent, but to keep on speaking. Why? Two reasons. I want you to get this. Number one, because he is with us. This is just as much true for us as it was for Paul. Verse 10, I am with you. Just as much true for us, how so? You might remember Jesus' words in his great commission to his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel. These are Jesus' words to all of his disciples. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And then he says, and surely I am with you always. To the very end of the age, he's still with us. Those words from Jesus were not just for Paul, they're to all of his disciples. And it's massively encouraging because as hard as the opposition comes or as hard as people's hearts may seem, Jesus knows what's going on. He is not removed from us. He is right here with us. So keep speaking. He's with us. And second reason, because of his, enc his encouragement is undergirded by his sovereign choice of choosing people whom he will save. He says, I have many people in this city. We say, well, who's he talking about? 
Well, we know at least one in Corinth in verse 17. Sosthenes is mentioned by name as the replacement synagogue ruler after Crispus. He was no doubt one of the leading Jews who attacked Paul in court. Well, did you know Jesus had sovereignly picked out Sosthenes to be saved by the preaching of Paul? How do we know that? Because if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, the letter that Paul will later write to this church, he mentions Sosthenes by name. He, now he's a brother in Christ. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth. And then he goes on. Here is Jesus' encouragement to us here in the city of Adelaide, not to be afraid, to keep on speaking, not to be silent, why? Because, please believe this, Jesus has many people in this city. He did in Corinth and he does here. Now, so I wanna talk us about us reaching the city. Now I know, I know we like to say we're not the city, we're the hills, you know. But the reality is people in the city, in, down the plain, think of the hills as still part of Adelaide, and most of us, guess what, are connected with down the plain. All right, so let's just get over that. Jesus has many people in the city of Adelaide, here in the hills and down the hill. He has many people whom he's chosen, who will be called to him by sharing the gospel. And that is massively encouraging to hear when you feel like you're going out on a limb for Jesus again and it hasn't yielded fruit. Remember, Jesus has many people in this city. Now, that's encouraging. Don Carson, a Bible scholar, wrote this book, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor. This was a book about his dad, who was a Baptist pastor in, French, in the French-speaking section of Quebec in Canada in the 1950s onwards. Uh, the going there was very tough for a Protestant pastor. French Quebec was almost wholly and staunchly Roman Catholic. Services were conducted in Latin, people were religious, but they were very close to the gospel. And in those days, Protestant churches rarely grew bigger than 40 people, and oftentimes they were much smaller. And so Don Carson writes of a memory he had as a teenager when in 1959, the area suddenly received this influx of French-speaking Protestant missionaries who'd, who'd been serving in the Congo and the political situation there had changed and required the missionaries to go home, so suddenly his area is flooded with these returned missionaries. And in talking to them, he, he realized in the Congo there'd been many, many conversions, and hospitals had been built, and had been, schools had been built, there'd been lots and lots of fruit. And Don Carson, as a teenager, he asked his dad, the Baptist pastor, why didn't you leave here if the going is so tough and somewhere else is more fruitful. And he remembers his dad's answer. And his dad said, because I believe that Jesus has many people in this city. Straight from Acts 18, from Jesus' words to Paul. He saw them as Jesus' words to himself. And so he stuck it out right through the 1960s. Again, very little growth. Churches were struggling just to maintain their own. Until the 70s, within a few short years, people's attitudes to Catholicism began to relax and their hearts became open to the gospel. And in a tremendous work from God, the number of churches quickly grew to 500. 
and then settled down around 400. But a university student ministry was begun and then a French-speaking Bible college was started to supply churches with their sudden need for pastors, all right? And Don Carson comments that what helped his dad to persevere was his belief that kingdom growth ultimately begins and ends with Jesus' sovereign decision, his choice to mark people out and to mark out cities for salvation, to mark out people who will be called to him through the preaching of the gospel. And because he believed that, that Jesus is Lord of this city and Lord of salvation in this city, he stayed and he persevered for a long time and then there was a lot of fruit, but not for a long time. In three weeks time we have CMS Summer Conference, great conference. I want to encourage you by sharing what I heard from a speaker 10 years ago, I kept his notes, Lindsay Brown, who was at that time president of the International Lausanne Movement for the Evangelization of the World. Because of his position, he had a better better handle on what God was doing around the world. And to my complete surprise, he told us that the 20 years prior to this, which is now, you know, between 10 and 30 years from us now, had been the most spectacular in terms of worldwide kingdom advancement than any other time in history. In 1989, there were only six known evangelical churches in Mongolia. By 2012, that number had grown to 160, unprecedented growth. Lee and Tamara Filmer will be at this conference. Um, They report of the area in Nepal. Next, in 1990, there were only 30,000 evangelical Christians in that country. In 2012, that number had grown to 900,000. And the growth came ironically because the pastors were imprisoned, which emboldened others to preach. In Ethiopia, the previous five years had seen 200,000 new baptized believers every year. It had the fastest growing student movement in the world. In Algeria, there were 80,000 believers which, where there were virtually none 20 years previously. In 1989, there were only two known believers in Albania. In 2012, that number had grown to 20,000. It was the fastest growing church in Europe. This is to say nothing, of course, of China, which now has 70 to 80 million evangelical Christians, especially in the coastal areas. So during the last 30 years, God has been doing an unprecedented work around the world. And that needs to be said because often we think that nothing is happening. Well, this is my 19th year in the Trinity Network. And it seemed like slow going to me. But when I speak to people who are a lot longer in the tooth than I am, who've been around a lot longer, they said, no, 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 this has been years of unprecedented growth. Really? I think God has been working amongst us. In 21 years, 10 churches have started. I think, yeah, but on the ground, it's so hard, right? It's slow. You look at it with perspective, it's astounding. We need to realize that, don't we? How do we reach this city? Acts 18 gives us four key lessons. Number one, establish partnerships near and far. Number two, fulfill your responsibility to witness whenever you can until you can't. Number three, trust God because authorities can be helpful. And number four, be encouraged. Jesus has many people in this city. Amen.
Amen. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the encouragement of doing the digging deep work in the book of Acts and the encouragement it can be for us. Keep glorifying your name, we pray. Keep working in our city. Keep stirring our hearts to share Christ with people in this city. We pray for Doug. We pray for people that we will meet this week in the course of our weeks. Please give us opportunity and courage to speak of Christ to them as we can or to witness to them in our actions which are so compelling that they ask what is different about you. We, we ask this, that you would be glorified and your church would grow. In Jesus' name, amen.